the three questions that we ask is, God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? Yeah. God, what are you revealing concerning yourself in this time and in this particular text? The second question that we ask is, God, what are you revealing concerning people? What are you revealing concerning people? And then the third question that we ask is, God, what are you revealing concerning me? Yeah. God, what are you revealing concerning me? We've been reading through the entire Bible for 20 or 30 minutes a day, and then we spend 20 minutes just reflecting with our spirit open to those three questions. And it's been a powerful endeavor for those of you who have engaged with us. We have read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and now we're reading through the book of 2 Kings, and I believe we are today in chapter 16, and make sure that's correct. Hold on. Are we in chapter 16? Yes, that's right. Uh, I believe we're in chapter 16, and so for that reason, let's get right into it. We're going to read, and then we're going to rant. Father, we ask that you would be with us today. Lord, engage with us as we engage with you in your word. Father, I just pray right now that you would bless this time. Lord, let your word be revealed to us. Father, we submit ourselves to you. Let it not be by our intellectual facilities, Lord, our intellectual capacity. But Father, allow us to receive from you, Lord God, that you would attune to our heart and to our soul. Let this word Lord, take root in us today so that it may bear fruit and I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings 16. And we're going to be reading from verse 1. We'll be reading from verse 1. And it says, uh, it says this. In the 17th, 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was... 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem and he did not know. Sorry, he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense in high places on the hills and under every giant, sorry, every every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At the time, Rezin, king of Syria, captured Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. Then the Edomites went to Elath and dwelt there to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath, Peleser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel, who rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him. For the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, carried its people captive to Ker, and killed Rezin. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath, Peleser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent for Erijah the priest to, uh, sorry, and King Ahaz sent to Erijah the priest the design of the altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. And Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. And the king came back from Damascus and the king saw the altar and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. So he burnt, he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and he poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood on its peace offerings on the altar. He also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord from the front of the temple from between the new altar and the house of the Lord and put it on the north side of the new altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest saying on this, on the great new altar, burn the morning burnt offering. 
the evening grain offering, the king's burnt sacrifice and his grain offering, with all the burnt offerings of the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offerings, and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offerings and all the blood of the sacrifice. And the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Thus Uriah the priest did according to all that the king had commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the panels of the cart and removed the lavers from them. And he took down the sea, sorry, took down the sea from the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a pavement of stones. Also, he removed the Sabbath pavilion, which they had built in the temple. And he removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord on account of the king of Assyria. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz rested with his fathers and buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Ella, became king of Israel and Samaria. And he reigned nine years and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And but not the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria, carried Israel away to Samaria and placed them in Hala and by Haber, the king, the, sorry, the river of Josen in the city of Medes. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. Also, the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord, their God. Things that were not right. And they built for themselves in the high places in the cities from the watchtower to the fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every hill and under every green tree. There they burned incense on all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. Then the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all his prophets, every seer saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimony, which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters went after the nations who were around them concerning them. And the Lord had charged them that they could not do like them. So they left all the commandments of the Lord, their God and made for themselves a molded image and two calves made a wooden image and worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire, practice witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord and to provoke him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from their sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. Hmm. Also, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord, their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel, which they made. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, and delivered them into the hand of the plunderers until he had cast them from his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David and made Jeroboam king of, uh, son, the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which 
he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. <laughs> As he had said by all his, his servants, the prophets, so Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria as to this day. Hmm. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Safavarim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Hold on one second. Let's see here. Hopefully I got that working. Verse 24. Then the king of Assyria brought the people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Safaim, Safavaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, the nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore, he sent lions among them. And indeed, they killed them because they did not know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, send one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there. Let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of, their, of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Sakath benath and the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, the Avites made Nabaz and Tartak, and the Safarvites burned their children in fire to Abramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Safavaim. And they made, and they, sorry, so they feared the Lord. And from every class they appointed for themselves priests in high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of high places. They feared the Lord, yet they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord. They do not follow the statutes of their ordinances or the law and the commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifices. And the statutes, the ordinances, the law, and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that, you, that I have made with you, you shall not forget. You shall not fear other gods, but the Lord, your God, you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of your enemies. However, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet they served carved images. Also, their children and their children's children have continued to do so, do as their fathers did, even to this day. Hmm. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Ella, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, this, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. 
He removed the high places. He broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Sorry. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was nothing like him among the king of kings of Israel, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of King Hoshea, the son of Ella, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. And the king of Assyria was carried away captive in Assyria and put them in Halal by Habor, the river Gozen, in the city of Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them. And in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Then the king of Assyria sent to Tartan, Rapsuris, and Rabshakin from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to king Hezekiah and went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they had come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which was on the highway to the fuller's field. And when they had called the king, Eliakim, the son of Helkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Esaph, the recorder, came out to him. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Now say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power of war, but they are mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? And said to Judah in Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, king of Assyria, and I will give you 200 horses if you're able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of the masters of the servant and put your trust in Egypt for its chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, the son of Helkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Hebrew, in the hearing, the people who are on the wall. Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to your master, to you to speak these words, and not to the men who sit on the wall? who will eat and drink their own waste with you. Then Rebshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew saying, and spoke, uh, sorry, loud voice in Hebrew and spoke saying, hear the word of the Lord, the great king of Assyria. 
Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me and every one of you from, from his own vine and every one of you from his own fig tree and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern until I come and take away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyard, a land of olive groves and honey that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sephavaim and Hena and Eva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand? And the Lord shall deliver Jerusalem from my hand. But the people held their peace, answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, was in the household of Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah, and their clothes were torn, and told them the words of Rabshakeh. The word of God for us today. Word of God for us today. So good to see all of you. So good to see each and every one of you who've come together to, to gather with us. As you guys know, this is what we do. This is our rhythm. We just spend time in reading scripture. I, uh, it's becoming one of my favorite things to do with you guys. It's one of my favorite things to do, which is just to sit down with you all and allow you an opportunity to eavesdrop in my daily walk. Um, this has been a regular rhythm for me because one of the things that I learned probably early on in my faith walk, one of the things that I learned was I learned the importance of meditation or reading. I think for many people, we find, at least I find this very common in quote unquote Christian circles or in the church. I find it very common that people have learned uh, or have rhythms of a piecemeal Bible study or piecemeal um, um, study of scripture where either on Sunday, a pastor gives you a few verses and preaches on it, or you may have a rhythm of reading the verse of the day on um on um on you version or whatever it is and this there's nothing wrong with the verse of the day and you guys have heard me say this before i i don't see anything wrong with reading the verse of the day and spending time in the memorization of the verse of the day i, I see nothing wrong with that i mean there's nothing I, i'm not against that at all however let's be let's be real and let's be honest if you read two verses a day this is just something a word of conviction before i even get into what i want to share today but if you read let's say two verses a day and if you had perfect attendance at your church on Sunday, many of us here are churchgoers. Some of us are not. Some of you guys have left church a long time ago. And and, um, and to some, it's out of hurt and out of pain. To some, it's out of just disenchantment. Um, you just didn't see anything. You didn't see the purpose of it. Um, you didn't see how it applied to you. I get it. I'm, I, I'm not here to, to, to critique or criticize you. But let's put some perspective on this. If you invested that hour every week and you had perfect attendance on Sunday, one hour where the pastor really spends about five to 10 minutes, right? Reading scripture and then teaches that particular portion of scripture. What you're saying is, is that you've devoted a f a 52 hours because it's only 52 weeks, 52 hours. And then, of course, possibly an additional hour if you just spend some time meditating on the verse of the day. And I, th I believe that that's a travesty in the body of Christ because here's the reality. 
is that 52 hours will not allow you the opportunity to cover through the entire scripture. It is the admission of every preacher, every pastor who preaches the word and who teaches the word that they will tell you that, um, yeah, um, there are books in the Bible I've never preached. There are pastors who will admit that there are portions of scripture that were never taught, that would never pre that they've never preached. And it's not, a, this is not a knock on anyone who's, who preaches the word because the reality is, is it is impossible to preach through the entire Bible in a year. Um, it is impossible actually to spend time in the teaching of the scripture within a period of five years. It's, 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 it's impossible if all you got is an hour a week and maybe Bible study on Wednesday. It's impossible, right? And so, uh, and, and, and not, not, to, not to add to that as well, sorry, to add to that as well is when you spend time really in the study of scriptures, we could sit here and just with this portion of scripture that I read, we could spend the next three, four weeks on it. There's so many things here that we've got to unpack, that we've got to sift through, that we have to untangle and, and unveil in order to gain a really in-depth uh, understanding of what's transpiring even in this particular time and in this particular reading, right? There's so much there that, I, that we just, we're just not afforded that time. I say that to you because it's easy if our posture is about the intellectual, right, activity and exercise of the reading scripture, it is easy for you to feel like you've fallen short, right? It's easy for you to feel like, man, it doesn't fully make sense. Or man, I need a full breakdown of this because I don't have a complete understanding of what I'm reading. It's easy for you to fall into that place because if your posture with scripture is simply to have the, the intellectual knowledge then the scripture actually becomes ineffective for the purpose by which it was designed for in the first place, which was it was designed to articulate a story, to articulate the story of God and what God is doing, what God is accomplishing. And yes, there's nothing wrong with spending time in depth and in breadth in particular portions of scripture to read it deeply, but it's more important, I will argue, and more critical that you understand the grand narrative, the big picture, to understand the total story, what the story is actually about, before you start digging in to understanding portions of scripture. I find that many believers, we do this backwards. We're trying to understand sections of the Bible, but we're trying to understand them not in light of the big story. We're trying to understand them in their own vacuums. And because we attempt to understand them in their own vacuums, we miss the whole thing. We miss the whole point. It's like the analogy we've used before about the elephant. You can spend all the time analyzing the, tr the, the, the leg of the elephant and, then, and, and never actually seeing the whole elephant. And you analyze it and you, you study it and you study it. And, 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 and so once you've come up to, with the conclusion that this is whatever it is, you know, call it a tree trunk, right? Whatever you want to call it, and you've analyzed it. And, and you say, oh, no, it's a living tree trunk. And then you poke it and you realize it responds and maybe it moves and you study it and you study it. And you study that leg, and you study that leg. And in the end, you come up with a conclusion that doesn't even fit within the grand picture. The big picture is this is the leg of an elephant and you may have never caught that because you never studied this part of the elephant in light of the entire elephant. We're here to get a picture of the elephant. That's what we're here to do. We're here to get the big picture. And that's why I believe that the most important activity for a believer is just to read through the scripture, just read through it. I know I sound like a broken record, but it is important for you just to read through it. That's why we're here. And for some of you, this may be intimidating, and this is why we do this. It's because you can sit with me, and together we can read this, and maybe it'll encourage you. That's why I even started the Read and Rant. I started it with that in mind. Hey, you know what? Let me just, let me just sit down, and let me just read along with you. You get to do what I do every day. I could talk all day about what we've read here, but I essentially just back up, and I say, Lord, um, there's a lot here. 
And this is what I did even in my early walk. And this is where I say that it's the grace of God and the advantage that I have by the grace of God, not by anything, but by the grace of God that when I had come to faith in Christ, when I came to make, when I came and committed my life to Christ, I didn't go to Bible studies. I didn't go to, um, concordances or I didn't read commentaries and Bible dictionaries. That's not where I started. I actually just started with reading the whole thing. I would, I just read it. And it's by the grace of God that even as I read it, that I went, I don't even understand like 80% of what I'm reading. This is the truth. When I first started this journey in faith, I understand a single thing that I was reading, but the grace of God called me to persist, empowered me to persevere through it. And so I just read and I read. I started with the book of Romans. I read through the book of Romans and man, that was amazing. And then afterwards I was like, you know what? Let me just read the Bible. And so I went through Genesis, Exodus, the, you know, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Rules, 1st Samuel, 2nd Samuel, 1st King, 2nd Kings, Deuteronomy, you know, all of it. I just, I just went through all of it. And I just kept reading all the way through, reading all the way through. The first time that I read through it, I understood maybe, maybe 20%. <laughs> Just to be straight up honest with you, I understood maybe 20% of what I've read. But I read. And I say this to those of you who are here right now, who actually read through this with me and said, I understand a word. I need to go back. I need to study this. I need to study that. No, 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 no. You're in the right place and you're doing the right thing because the word of God is not meant to simply increase your knowledge in the scripture, but to draw you nearer to the presence of God, that you would receive a transmission in your spirit and your deposit in your spirit, because what's more important is not how much you know about the scripture, but how much the scripture reveals to you who God is and his heart and how much you know about him. When you've got the right posture and your heart has been sanctified and washed by the word, then you can read deeply and intently and study this in a deeper way. That's just a side note. And I felt it was important for me to share that for you guys to understand my heart, what I desire for you and what I hope you guys are getting in our time together is you need to have the right posture, have the right posture, have the appropriate posture as you engage in the scripture. Now that we're here, let's talk a little bit here. Because again, the big story, the grand narrative, if there's anything that we're concluding, and if if you if this is your first time here, you may have missed all our readings on Second Kings. And if you did completely understand it, I'm glad you're here. I would encourage you download the Read and Rant podcast. Um, if you want to support, um, become a patron on Patreon. Um, the link is in the bio. So I hope you guys, I hope you guys can can. Um, can join and support as we continue to move forward. I'm actually looking forward to our um, <laughs> our Bible study at the at the end of this month. Actually, next Tuesday, next Tuesday we have a Bible study on the Book of Revelation, and I'm really excited about it because, again, I've said it multiple times that the Book of Revelation is one of the most misinterpreted, misunderstood books in the Bible. So, um, I'm sure many of you are are intimidated by that book, scared by that book, and a lot of fear has been. Um, um, cultivated and brewed up because of that book. And yet when you read it the way it ought to be read, it sets you free and you go, Oh, that's what revelation is all about. Great. Awesome. Anyway, subscribe, um, to the podcast, but also, and y'all, yes, also read the, 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 the rants on revelation because it's gonna, it should open your perspective and open your mind. But now let's go to what we read here today. Uh, in second Kings chapter 17, um, when we read in verse 13, from verse 13 all the way to verse 23, right? That portion of scripture, I'd like to call that portion of scripture a review. 
It's actually a review of what we read. It's a short synopsis of what we've read in the previous throughout this entire book. Let me just remind you for those who who, who may have this may be your first time here. Let me remind you that first Kings and second Kings, um, they were one book. They're the book of Kings. And then, of course, in the canon of Scripture, they were separated and split up to First Kings and Second Kings. They were just divided into two books. Um, in part, there's many reasons for it, but in part because it is a long book. And so, of course, it's a lot to carry. And so it was split up into two parts and it was broken at the part of um, at the death of, of of Ahab and Jezebel. Now, now, that, that's, that's not where we're at here. We have been reading through the book of first Kings and second Kings. We read the book of first Kings and second Kings, right? In light of what was promised in the book prior to Kings, which is in the book of Samuel first and second Samuel, Samuel was called as a prophet to usher in the King of Israel. There is an anticipation that God is establishing his government that God is establishing his rule through these children that he has called, that he has set aside, these holy people, the children of Israel, and that there is a king that is coming through them, among them, who would rule and establish justice on the earth. This rule and this justice is going to look profoundly different than any government, any rule, anything you've ever seen before. It is a fundamentally different type of kingdom. It's not a kingdom of economics, of philosophy, of power, of influence, of military might, but it's a strange kingdom. It's a kingdom that makes all things right. It's a kingdom that makes all things new. It's a kingdom that brings restoration to all things. But it's a kingdom nonetheless. And every kingdom is a king, needs a king. And this kingdom that is being established, Israel is waiting for a king. Now pay attention, fam, because what we're learning and what you should learn throughout this text is God has been about establishing his kingdom up to this point. He's about the restoration of the earth. He's about bringing things in order and making things right again. It's about, it's about the restoration of all things. Are you with me? And now we have this tension at the end of the book of Samuel because Samuel first started off with the king that the people chose. And we learned very quickly, Saul was the king that the people chose. Saul fit the look, but Saul wasn't the king. And then Saul, of course, we, we know the demise of Saul, the suicide of Saul. Saul ended. It was over for him. And then there was David. David was a man after God's own heart. And it's easy for us to think and to say, David's the hero. David is going to be the king that brings righteousness and justice. But then we see David's flaws. And we see that while he's a man after God's own heart, David doesn't fit the bill either. As a matter of fact, David, who wanted to build a temple for the Lord, the Lord said, there's blood on your hands, David. You can't even build a temple for me. As a matter of fact, my heart and is what God said. He said, my heart isn't for you to build a house for me. But what God tells David in second Samuel chapter seven is God tells David, I want to make you a house. I want to make my people a house. God is saying that this was never about a temple. It was never about building a tabernacle or a temple. I want to tabernacle with you. He didn't want the tabernacle that was the noun. He wanted the tabernacle that was the verb. He wanted to tabernacle with his people. He wanted to make the people his house. Are, are, are you are you hearing me, family? He wanted to make the people his house. And in that text, he gave evidence to when this would transpire. 
that at the time that this tabernacle will be built, that there's a messianic king that is to come. There is a king. David, you're not the king, but there's a king that's going to come from you. That's 2 Samuel. There's a king that's going to come from you, and through that king will be my house. And through this king will be the tabernacle. And through this king will be the restoration and justice of all things, the reconciliation of all things, the making of all things right. It will be my righteousness and my justice. It will come together. Eden will finally be established. Heaven and earth will come into fruition and to meet and to be intertwined as one reality. This is what's going to happen through this king that will come through you. It's easy then for David to believe that's going to come immediately after him. It wasn't Solomon. And we knew it wasn't Absalom. We know Absalom was the one that defected from David. Absalom is the one that tried to overthrow David and commit treason against David. David kicks Absalom out. And yet it wasn't Solomon either. And yet Absalom and Solomon broke out. Solomon, while he was wise, is still, there's still a travesty in Solomon's story because Solomon, while he had wisdom, fell to idol worship, fell to a multiplicity of women who all compromised his position and his faith. And because of that reason, Saul lost Israel. Sorry, not Saul. Solomon lost Israel. God tells Solomon that he's going to lose it, that his son will not attain the, 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 the nation of Israel, that Israel will be split, and all Solomon will have is Judah. Jerusalem would be the capital of Judah. That's in the southern region. The northern region will be Absalom's son, Jeroboam. But now we see throughout the story, and you can read all the way through, and if you have been here, you know where I'm going with this, is what the book of Kings is about is it's a book of travesty after travesty after travesty after travesty after travesty. This is a book of tragedies because every one of those kings were not those kings. They were not the king. Everyone wasn't the king. And we've been learning about how each one wasn't the king. Not that king. Not that king. <laughs> Not that king, but Israel's waiting for a king. No, not that king. And not that king. Not that king. Why? Because they compromised. That left us where we were on Friday. Left us where we were on Friday. And what 2 Kings 17 is doing is 2 Kings 17 is just recapping. From verse 13 all the way to verse 23, recapping everything that we've read up to this point. The northern region we call the nation of Israel. The southern region was Judah. The capital of the southern region now was Jerusalem. The capital of the northern region was Samaria. And what it says is it tells us all the things that these kings had done, both in the northern and the southern region. There were a couple in the southern region who were I. But the northern region, they were all messed up. Why? Because they followed after the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam, who came from Absalom. Notice, both of them are, king, are, are David's sons. And I, I showed, you know, you, you see an image of, of uh, Ishmael and Isaac. There's the covenant, right? And the covenant going through Judah. And then you have now, of course, DNA, genetics, <laughs> Absalom and David. And yet the scriptures tell you the Lord testified against Israel, that's in the north, and against Judah, that's in the south, by all the prophets, every seer seeing. So therefore, you have the kings in the north, the kings in the south, they all fell short because of their compromise to the law of God and their compromise to the justice of God. They were not ruling under God's government. They were ruling under self-government or under a government that compromised the government of God and the law of God and the rule of God by incorporating the worship of other idols, other cultures, and other influences. And yet God called them to be holy and distinct from all these things. And so the prophets, they were there as the policers of the law. They were there as the watchmen, the watchdogs. They were there as those who were the 
gatekeepers of the law, to protect the law, to remain faithful to the law. That's what the prophets were there for. By the way, that's what the office of the prophet was. I know I said this before, but I'll say it again. The office of the prophet was not an office of telling you your future. The office of the prophet was not the office of telling you what's in your mind. The office of the prophet was not the office of prophesying to you about that God's going to give you a car, God's going to give you some clothes, or God's going to turn it around for you. That is not what the Old Testament, the office of the Old Testament prophet was. That was not the role of the prophet. The primary role of the prophet was to address the systems, the institutions, and the government. The office of the prophet was to speak the righteousness, the justice, and the law of God to those whom God had placed as rulers of his kingdom. The office of the prophet does not exist today because the office of the prophet then was under a rule of kings. It was in coincidence with the kings who God had called. And we see now what the prophets did, what they did as seers is they held judgment against the kings of Israel in the north and the kings of Judah in the south. And what he and what they were policing was what, 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 look at, look what, look what it says in verse 13 saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law, which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets, the prophets were there to administrate the law. The prophets were spiritual prosecutors. That was their job. They were prosecutors of the law. You know, it's funny how we have this weird broken image of what prophets are today and what they ought to do today and what they're called to do today because we have these broken ideologies of the prophets. We think that the prophets are the ones who you go to them and they tell you about your life <laughs> and they tell you about what you're going through and they speak to you about stuff and tell you how you're going to be blessed and give you direction and you wait to hear from God by hearing from a prophet when you've been given the privilege to hear from God directly. Did you not know that the veil was torn at the death of Jesus Christ, that you have the same access to God that quote unquote prophet so-and-so has? Oh, no, 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 no. We decide to passively sit back like the children of Israel did when God wanted to meet and encounter and to dwell with the children of Israel. And yet the children of Israel consciously chose to say, Lord, we do not want to see the eminence of your glory. Show it to Moses and let Moses speak it to us. What temptation do we have instead of hearing from God that we choose to hear from man? And then we get hurt. I'm sorry, fam, I'm, I'm ranting. But then we get hurt when preachers and pastors and prophets say and do things that veer from the will of God, not realizing that you esteem them in a manner which God never intended for you to esteem them. And I know this is going to sound painful, and I know this is going to offend some people, but I have to say it anyway, and I'm going to say it, and know, that, know this, that I'm saying this in love. I'm saying this in love, family. But there are a lot of us here who have been hurt by the church. We've been profoundly hurt by the church, and I don't want to dismiss your hurt because your hurt is real, but this is going, this is going to hurt what I'm about to say. But you got to own some of that. Like, if you're going to heal, you're going to have to own some of that. Because the reality is, is that you made a prophet, a pastor, a preacher, a teacher, somebody that they should not have been in your life. You made them God. And for many of us here, we actually have a God problem because of what a pastor did to us. And what a preacher did or what a minister or a priest, there are a lot of us. Yes, I know. I get it. There are a lot of us that have been hurt by people who we should have trusted. I get that. And, and it doesn't it doesn't take away from what they've done and how they've hurt you and how they've abused you and whatever they did to you. And there are a lot of us here who have been hurt by the church. But let's back up for a moment here, family. Is it possible, though? Is it possible that we made some people God when we shouldn't have? Because if you saw them for who they were, 
then you wouldn't have a God problem today because of what a pastor did to you. You wouldn't have a God problem today because of what a minister did. Does anybody understand that? And I know I don't want to listen. I'm I'm here and I understand it because I've 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 ministered to people who've been hurt by the church. I've ministered, but the reality is, and I've I've had to say to some some fam, I said the only way you're gonna heal now is you got to realize God, I actually did you wrong because I made you, I made preacher so and so. Doctor so and so, apostle so and so, prophet so and so, pastor so and so, father so and so. I made them God in my life when I should have never done that. And I'm learning now that my problem with you, God, is rooted in the fact that I never encountered you, God. My problem was, is I was encountering you through a person and not directly having a relationship with you. There are many of us, that's why we're hurt. That's why we're hurt. And yet these prophets, this is the conclusion of Second King. We're beginning to see the end of Second King. We're beginning to see now how Second Kings is closing, and it's and, and and so we're seeing this conclusion. But before we get to this conclusion, there's this point where there's a synopsis of what has transpired up to this point, saying that all these kings, the prophets called them out. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffened their necks, like the necks of their father, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected the statues. They rejected his covenant. They rejected. They rejected the promise of the prophets were doing. They were, they were calling all this stuff out. And then they followed idols. They became idolaters. Look at what the text is saying. They went after nations who were around them. So rather than being a holy nation, they wanted to be a nation that, that looked like all the other nations. They compromised. They went after other nations who were around them concerning whom the Lord charged them that they should not do like them. They became like them and did like them. They assimilated when they were supposed to have separated. Hmm. So they left the commandments of the Lord their God. They made for themselves molded, molded images and two calves. They made wooden images and served and worshipped all the hosts of heaven. That's another conversation for another day. Serve Baal and cause their sons and their daughters to pass through fire. They were sat, they were practicing witchcraft and soothsaying, and they sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left alone but the tribe of Judah. Israel was far gone. They were doing child sacrifices. They were doing witchcraft, soothsaying. They were involved in the occultish activities. They were involved in, in, in Canaanite spirituality. And what we read, and I, I know we don't have enough time because I know my time is up. But what we read in the previous chapter about the king of Israel the one who came alongside with Ahaz, what do we learn? We learned in, in, in 2 Kings chapter 15. We learned about the kings in, 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 in 2 Kings chapter 15, along with 16, with Ahaz, along with the following kings. What did we learn? We learned that they worshipped God in coincidence with worshiping Canaanite idols. And this is where I'm closing, family. We have a church that looks a lot like the nation of Israel. We have a tendency and a proclivity to say, Jesus, be the ruler over my life. But also, I want to be governed and ruled by these things as well. It goes as far as people who practice occult 
while they serve Jesus. Or they go to church on Sunday. But they've incorporated the cultural worship of whatever whatever cultural spirituality they grew up with. I'm familiar about familiar with this in the islands. There are people who feel like they can be Christian and still do voodoo. I see it in, in the Caribbean, where there are Cubans who still feel like they can do Santeria while they serve Jesus Christ. <laughs> this was the issue with Samaria that we just read in this text, where they were willing to serve the spirits of the region. And yes, also to serve God as well. In America, there are those who practice the occult and still go to church. I love how we like to point out, um, you know, Satan worship and demonic worship and the and and um, and voodooism and, and Santeria and all these other practices that that you know we see in in, in in Caribbean nations, but even in white culture, there are idols. And there are those even in white culture. There's white magic. And in white culture, there's white spirituality, there's new age, there's all kinds of other things that people now are incorporating with their walk with Christ. And what we miss here, and I, I, it's because I don't have the time, and I'm going to go back to it. Freemasons, rising stars, yes, we can go all day with this. Five percenters, we have people who will say, hey, you know what, I'm going to worship Jesus. Yeah, I believe in the resurrected Jesus, but also... I'm going to do some of this new age stuff. So I'm going to follow Zodiac signs and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to follow horoscopes and I want to know what sign you are because your sign is going to determine your destiny. And I forgot, I think I tweeted this or I posted this somewhere in one of my platforms, either it's on IG or whatever. And I said, anybody who determines their destiny or believes that their destiny is somehow determined by, a, by the horoscope or a zodiac sign is consciously and explicitly declaring that they do not have complete trust in Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, what we read here is a story of kings who built two altars, went back to Jerusalem and said, rebuild the altar for me and put it next to the other altar. And so in church now we have two altars. And so on one side, there's all of that stuff. But then on the other side, we still have other idols. For some of us, it's money. We see the idolatry of money in the church because the spirit of our age is about money and economic influence, materialism. So you know what we do? We preach compromising gospels. To say when you come to Jesus, the Lord's going to bless you with a new car. He's going to bless you with a mansion. He's going to bless you with all this. Because again, we are, we are subjecting ourselves to the spirit of the age. There are those who will compromise the, our sexual identities because now we've been taught that we are what we're attracted to. I'm sorry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there in a minute. So we have one church that condemns people who are sexually deviant, but only sexually deviant in the way that their culture will accept it. Right? So gays are an abomination, but it's okay to fornicate. Oh man, it's tough today. Give me five more minutes. Give me five more minutes. No, 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 no. This particular activity, oh, the Lord won't accept that. But if you're having an affair, I guess mm, maybe ah, we can work with that. So we have a Christianity that's only subjected to the cultural stream of thought. And then, of course, we have another Christianity that responds to that. And the way that Christianity responds to it is to say, well, if you won't accept me the way that I am, because God created me the way that I am, then you know what? We're going to create our own church with our own doctrine that fits our own cultural way of thinking. Because our idol is our sexuality. 
You know, my problem with progressive churches is, is that there's an idolatry of sexuality. So now we look for glorifying our sexual preference and our sexual attraction. Woo, man, oh man. I'm ranting. I'm ranting today. Not realizing that we're falling under the same idolatry. I always see it when you got LGBTQ churches arguing with these conservative churches and both of them are idolatrous. One's practicing hypocrisy, accepting one kind of sexual deviation over another, and this side has glorified sexual deviation. And both of them, both of them are idols that we place next to the worship of Yahweh. Because we're not string. So now it's not the, it's not the, it's not the day and the time and the age. It's, it's how I feel. It's not, it's not the, it's not about what God says. It's about how I want it to be. So on one side, yeah, it's demonic worship, but on the other side, it's equally demonic because it's self-glorifying, it's self-gratifying, it's self-pleasing, it's self-actualizing. We're taught now to be the best people that we can be. We're taught to be, this is the way we were born, so let's live out what we were born into when God told us that we ought to be transformed. Didn't the scriptures tell us that the way we were born is broken? Then the scriptures tell us that we need to die to ourselves. I was born this way is the worst excuse. God doesn't want you how you were born. He wants to transform you. And this is not just on issues and matters of sexuality. This is on matters of everything. Everything. You're going to have to die and lose yourself. And if you cannot die to yourself, you can never gain a life in Christ. Two calves, two altars, a multiplicity of idols, and kings that are trying to worship God and worship the idols of the age. May we not be that church. May we not be the church that simply does what fits with culture. May we not be the church that simply does what we think. Hey, you know what? I feel like this is right. May we be a church that remains faithful to the scripture and faithful to God and faithful to his word and faithful to what he says. May we be a church that gets to know God and to love him, like to know him, not just know his word, but to know him. And maybe then the Lord could use us to bring restoration, transformation, and renewal to a world that is lost and in need of him. Father, I just pray right now, Lord, that you would convict us today. Well, as we're reading this, Lord God, we're seeing the great, the great consequence of compromise. The great consequence of compromise. Father, let our church not be like Samaria. Let our church not be the region in the north. Let our church not be a church that has brought many nations and many cultures into one place. And rather than transforming the cultures, the cultures come in to redefine what your kingdom ought to be. We've read in this word, Father. Lord, how much you take your justice seriously your righteousness, seriously, how much you do not compromise. And Father, I just pray, Lord, that we'd have the same conviction. Lord, guide us, lead us, bless us. Lord, convict our hearts, Lord. Let us see who you for who you are. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Family, God bless you. I will see you guys tomorrow. Sorry, if I, I feel like I've been going about 10 minutes over every time, but... 
Um, I will see you guys tomorrow. Um, I want to thank all of you who are patrons, who support what we do here. Your support is what makes this a reality. Your support um, is the reason why I'm able to do more. I can't wait to do the Bible study on Tuesday. I'm looking forward to that. Um, for those of you who who are patrons, I'll be sending some updates pretty soon as well. I mean, if you're interested in supporting uh, the ministry, supporting what we're doing here, um, just click the link in the bio or on the profile. If you click the link on the profile, the, f- the first link that's up there, you're, you're going to see a link that says become a patron. Just click that link. Um, if you're interested in supporting or you want to learn more about what we're doing, just click that link as well and learn more about it. But I truly believe this, that God's about to equip another generation of people. And I will say this as well, is I'm becoming more and more convinced that there's about to be a renaissance in the church, a revolution in the church. I, I This weekend, I was just grateful, like like grateful that the Lord has had me on this journey and and on this journey that the Lord has had me on, um, that he's brought me at this stage in my life in ministry that I get to be a part of this. It's not going to just be me. Okay, this is not about me, by the way. Not about me at all. And yes, I know. I know about this, Jason. Um, but I, I'm excited. I'm excited because there's about to be a revolution of Christian influence. And we're about to see a redefinition of the church. We're about to see a transformation like we haven't seen before. And I get to be a witness in that. I get to be a witness in that. And I'm excited about it, truly, profoundly excited about it. And the Lord, I can tell you guys, guys, I I, I never planned for any of this, even with how this platform has grown and how you guys have come and been a part of this. We're way past 20,000 downloads on the podcast. There are more of you guys who are supporting what we're doing here. It's a redefinition of ministry, and you guys have been a part of that. You guys are partnering with me on that. I am profoundly grateful for each and every one of you. And I know for some of you, you guys think $10 a month, it's no big deal. He got that. You have no idea what it means and how much it affirms the work that we're doing. 